Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey, welcome back. I'm Elise, and you're listening to the Together PDX podcast Gospel Gathering series. In this episode, we have Dr. Esau McCulley's second talk he gave during the November 2023 Gospel Gathering titled, How Are We as the Church Trying to Shape Christian Imagination? If you haven't heard his first talk on how to tell a story that will set us free, make sure to listen to the previous episode also. As I said in the introduction to that one, this talk was so eagerly awaited in Portland, and Dr. McCulley absolutely delivered one that will stay with us and keep us thinking for months to come. So without further ado, here is the recording of Esau McCulley's 2023 talk, How Are We as the Church Trying to Shape the Christian Imagination? Now for something a little bit different. I would like to um, tell a, a different part of my story and part of my journey as a writer. How did I come to do what it is that I do? And related to that is the question of what is Christian art? What does a person of faith do or think that we're doing we put pen to paper. Well, actually, I do stuff on the keyboard, but pen to paper feels poetic, doesn't it? <laughs> when I put pen to paper, or better yet, fingers on the keyboard. But I think this is important because the longer that I spend as a writer, the more I started to feel and to think that what I say and do as a writer for the church is closely connected to my years when I actually was a preacher. The vocation of the Christian writer from the church and for the church is close related to the work that we as Christians are doing in the world. Stated differently, I come from you all and I try to serve you. So I hope that the work that I do is somehow instructive to your own Christian vocations. And I said um, earlier, the storytelling, I think it's really important. Because what I'm most leery of is myth-making in popular Christian popular culture. Where our current place in the culture is the result of hard work, grit, and determination. I knew a lot of hard-working, determined, broke people. Right? If someone, if one more person tells me they're going to manifest something, they're going to jump out a window. Because <laughs> I could manifest, I would be 6'2 and I'd be able to dunk. Anyways, I believed it. I didn't doubt. <laughs> anyways, <laughs> I believe the Lord for them three or four inches. It didn't happen. Anyways, I am leery where like the speaker is some kind of hero. Because I think that providence or grace plays a larger role in our narratives we give credit to. And the things that appear haphazard become events of God's guiding care in retrospect, even when we couldn't see it at the time. In other words, people always ask me, Issa, what were you thinking of when you did this, that, and the other? I was like, I was just doing stuff. And they meant, no, 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 did you have a vision or a plan? No, I did not. I talked about um, to the group last night, and the people asked me a lot about my first book, Reading While Black, and I remember what it was like to write the book in Rochester, New York, in a basement at Northeastern Seminary in the wintertime. And it, it was, they, they taught night classes, so nobody was there during the day but me. And as the, as the winter happened, the snow would like get higher and higher, such that by the end of this winter, I, I didn't even have a window, I just had a snow, a snow thing. And then during the spring, 
I know the snow was melting because the guy would come out and start cutting the grass and he had a tattoo on his calf and he wore shorts in the wintertime. And that's what I saw when I'm writing, reading while black, I'm looking at the calf tattoo. Anyways, that's the truth of what I was thinking. What is that tattoo on his calf? Anyways, it's true, but nobody wants to hear that on the podcast interview. So I got to say something spiritual. I was thinking about helping the world. I was like, what's this tattoo? Anyways, I'm going to tell you a bit about my story. And I hope that telling that narrative might be instructive. Because looking back, as a kid, I can't say that I was something of a reader. That I spent more time in my head than most other kids. I remember sitting on my bed imagining books in the beginning of plots and even dreaming of titles. But I thought of that stuff as the ordinary musings of young people who just had an overactive imagination. My dream as a child was to be a preacher. Because my family, my grandfather, my aunts and my uncles were all in the ministry. In the Macaulay's and the Bones in my family, we tend towards binaries. We either in the streets or we're in the church. And black pastors were at the heart of serving and helping our community. I'm from Northwest Huntsville. If you know anything about the map of Alabama, you can, you can go from Huntsville over to Birmingham, where we learned about what Martin Luther King did there, the bus boycott. We, we, we go down to Montgomery, you go to Selma, you go to Atlanta. So at the center of where I was, even Nashville, all of these major cities were where the events of the civil rights movement happened. And these people who helped transform America were my heroes. I want to be like them. And it was the verbal part of communication. It's what I did. I thought that this is all that I could do. That I was convinced that my gifts were mostly rhetorical, not literary. That's all that I knew. There were no black writers that I from my neighborhood. So I wanted to pastor a local church. Because that's what you did if you love God. So for a while, I did. I went to seminary. And wonder of wonders, I got a degree. And so I sat down and I began to write sermons. At one point, I was writing three sermons a week. I was a youth minister. Don't worry, ask me why I did this, but it was a, it made sense at the time. I was a youth minister in Massachusetts, um, about two and a half hours north where I was living at the time. In Vermont, I was the college chaplain, uh, assistant to the chaplain at Dartmouth College, and I was leading a college church that met on Sundays. And so I was preaching to three different audiences um, and driving two and a half hours in the snow from Vermont down to Massachusetts. The Lord, Jesus take the wheel. That was before, I was doing that before the song came out. Cause like this, every, every time I would go back from Mississippi, I mean, um, Massachusetts up to Vermont, you drive up the highway, you just see folks on the side of the road, but by the grace of God. <laughs> and I enjoyed it. Um, and sometimes I would have time to write four manuscripts, but oftentimes I would only have time, any pastors who know what it's like, to only put the bullet points. I'm going to get there somehow. <laughs> Lord, fill in the gaps. But I would always, this is all, this is true. It's actually true for everything I've done since. Is that I would always write out the introduction word for word. Because I always wanted to convey a journey that I wanted to take the hero on. But isn't that like what a good beginning of a talk is, right? The pulling of something before the facts and the figures and the logic come forward, right? You want people to feel something. And I couldn't say it at the time, but I, but I recognize it now is that we are feeling people, not just the thinking people. And one of the things about that I loved about the black church in my youth is we both heard the gospel and we felt the gospel. My, my pastor would put it this way. He would say, you know, if you have water, you turn the water up, the water boils. And you could turn that water as hot as you want and you boil it and you turn it off. And when it cools off, it's just water. He said, but he put some neck bones in there. 
and some vegetables, and you turn that same fire on, it makes soup. So he says to the preacher, I give you the fire and the vegetables. <laughs> so I was trying to create a context. But the truth is, my congregation always complained. He saw your introductions are way too long. Y'all might be thinking this right now. <laughs> introductions are way too long. But looking back with, with clarity that I could not see then, those are actually my first opinion pieces. People ask me, like, what do I do? When one of my other jobs is I write for the New York Times, write a monthly column, write for the Washington Post and the Atlantic. And basically, they're the introductions to all of my sermons before I turn to the God bit. That's it. I just stop right there and say, see what happens next week. Anyways, because there were things that I saw and I felt that were going on in the world. They're more theological and cultural commentary connects to Jesus proper. That came later. And one of the things that I've learned to ask myself, and maybe you should ask yourself as you begin to think about your own vocation, is what do you do for free? What comes out of you when no one is asking for it? And if you can answer that question, that might be your first steps towards finding your vocation. And the truth is, I probably would have done that for my whole life. Write long introductions and longer sermons. I was so happy doing pastoral work. Because to work in a local church is the place where Christianity becomes flesh and blood, right? And marriages and funerals and Bible studies and small groups, evangelism. There's kind of an ordinary glory to church work that I wanted to embrace. In a world that was full of so much evil, I felt like there was a small kind of controllable amount of good that I could do in the world. I can help these people whom God has committed to my care. So I had no ambitions of doing anything else. And sometimes I feel like, and you're thinking I'm kidding, I'm not. I feel like I'm a failed preacher. <laughs> I had to find a second career. Maybe, I, maybe y'all will take me back in the church one day. But I, I made the, the glorious um, decision to fall in love with a woman. And she said that she wanted to be a missionary to, to help. Um, she's a pediatrician. And she wanted to um, serve in sub-Saharan Africa because she said something like there was like a, 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 a dirt of pediatricians in places like Uganda. And so I wanted to, she was going to be there. Well, you go, I go. That's how we do this. So I'm a man under authority. I submitted to my wife. <laughs> said, let's go to Uganda, baby. But I knew that Uganda didn't need pastors. What they might actually need is someone who could train clergy. And so I decided to get my Ph.D. That's the reason I went to do the graduate school. That's the reason. There's no deeper reason. I was in love. She wanted to go to Uganda. I needed a degree to get there. So I said I can go. (laughs) And people might want to ask. Some of you may know my advisor is N.T. Wright. I studied with him in St. Andrews. And I wasn't even going to apply to the to to go over overseas to my Ph.D. I was going to go where it was the cheapest. And I had a professor call me on the telephone. He said, Esau, you should press, you should push yourself further. I said, I'm pushing myself toward where the money's at. And he said to me, I never, he said, if you could go, he said, what could, what could, what could I do to convince you to apply to a school that was kind of a little bit more academically prestigious? He said, well, you go anywhere, would you go? I said, I'll go wherever NT right at. He said, well, apply and see what happens. I said, I will. <laughs> and I applied and he accepted me. And I said, baby, we're going to Scotland. <laughs> so we went over to Scotland. Because of a phone call of Professor May, Sean McDonough, Gordon Conwell. So I got into this doctoral program, and it revealed, in some sense, all of the bad habits I developed as a preacher. Because, and this is also true, a sermon outline carries all kinds of leaps in logic that you can bridge in delivery. Right, it was a spontaneity. I'll figure out what I'm gonna say at the moment. I love this this practice of reaching for an idea that wasn't quite there. That's what we call a leaving room for the Holy Spirit in the sermon. Right? But when you had to write that down, they wasn't looking for the Holy Spirit <laughs> in the PhD program. I said, brother, you better explain your point. 
It's true. But now, but now, I was judged only by what I actually wrote. And there was someone there who critiqued every single word that I ever said. You know how stressful it is to have N.T. Wright read everything you say? It's stressful. The three most stressful years of my life. Like, leave me alone. But it was good. Because it taught me something I think is important. That yes, students are people. We're emotional beings. But we're also logical beings. We have to touch the heart and the mind. We can't just shout. And we can't just give dry expositions of data. But the glorious communication comes somewhere at the combination of the two. So I want to ask my brothers and sisters who call to lead and preach. Is in your summer preparation, you leaving space for both the heart and the mind? So I figured out how to make legitimate arguments. And I remember having this crisis when I was halfway through my PhD. And I realized nobody's ever going to read this dissertation, which is true because y'all didn't invite me to Portland after my Galatians dissertation came out. <laughs> I had just a moment of clarity. No, you know, actually, I, where was I? I was somewhere um, last week. And for the first time, Someone came up to me and asked me to sign. I said, brother, where did you get the dissertation from? He asked me to sign. I said, I, ain't, I don't even have one. <laughs> it's like, God bless you. <laughs> you like the original. Like, you've been in the game for a longer time. My wife, my wife won't even read my dissertations. That's true. I used to ask her to help me when I was working on it. She said, baby, I'm not, I'm not getting a PhD. You are. You got to write it. <laughs> so, I had this feeling, I had a feeling that what I was doing was actually not relevant to the community that God had called me to serve. What I was trying to do in the dissertation was prove that I was as good as the other people. I was trying to win an intellectual game instead of serving the community. There's um, this quote by Toni Morrison. It says, one of the purposes of racism is distraction. And they say that you can't learn, so you go spend all of your time showing that you can learn. Then they say that you have no history, so you dig up your history. They say that it's about the size of your skull, and you got to go and do You will spend your whole life chasing these things that people must say you must do in order to be an intellectual. And it's not that I had lost sight of my community, but I was trying to show them that black people can write boring stuff too. And I realized that was a waste of my time. So I want to suggest to you all that you have to, to do the thing that actually sets your heart on fire. So I would work on my PhD during the day. This is true. I'd come home in the evening and I had a, a blog back when blogs were a thing. And I would just sit and I would just write and write and write. I never forget the first day that I got a hundred views on an article and I knew I could count on my mama and my cousin. I only know 40 people. So six of these people got to be strangers. Lord, I made it triple digits. <laughs> then 2016 happened. I was sitting in Scotland at the time and I don't know if y'all remember, really 2015 coming into 2016, it was the summer of a lot of Black Lives Matter protests. People were coming into the community, and I was walking around in Scotland. I remember this guy came up to me. I was walking down the middle of the highway, not the middle of the street. Like, it's only three streets in St. Andrews, one in the middle of the street, Main Street. And this guy comes in, this British guy says, Esau, why is the military, and this is his question, why is the military in your communities? And I said, man, you don't understand. I tried to explain it to him. And I realized, actually, it doesn't make any sense. And if any of you know anything about American history, I had in my mind a clear image of the Red Summer, 
Those of you who don't know what the Red Summer is, is that after World War I, a lot of African Americans came back having fallen in the war, expecting expanded rights because of the sacrifices they had made on behalf of the country, which led to a massive increase in lynchings and anti-black race riots. And in the context of the Red Summer and the anti-black race riots, you have eventually the Harlem Renaissance, which is the poetic and literary response to anti-black racism. And I said, I feel like we're about to go through another Red Summer. And I felt like there had to be a record. I didn't think anybody was going to read it. It was a blog. There had to be a record. Because I knew that one day, my children, because they were young at the time, they were going to get to the age that I got to, 16, 17 years old. And they're going to look around. And they're going to see the country that they would one day inhabit. They're going to see the brokenness of what's going on. And I was afraid that my son and my daughters were going to come to me one day and say, Dad, what did you do when the country was on fire? And I had this clear vision in my head, not to give it to you all. I promise I didn't. I want to give this stuff to my kids and say, this is this is all your dad had to do. I'd done the best that I could. So eventually what began as a blog, I remember when I was sorry, this is I'm nostalgic. I remember when I would go and speak at these events that I was never on the main stage. I was the breakout session at four o'clock when the speaker had to go and fly. They'd have to do the introductions to me, but I didn't have anything because I hadn't done anything. I remember the joke that I used to tell is like I printed out my blog in the back. <laughs> you can take it with you if you want. But I was writing and from eventually the people from Christianity Today um, invited me to start writing for them. Actually, a friend of mine introduced me to Christianity Today. And then I started writing for them. And I've once again thought that I had arrived in life. CT, this is how, what can you get any better? And eventually, this is true. I never applied for a writing job after that. The Washington Post reached out to me and asked me if I was interested in writing for them. I did that for a little while. And then the New York Times reached out to me and asked me would I be interested in doing columns for them. While I was off on the side, writing my blog because I wanted to help my children. There was somebody who was watching. And then in that context, reading while black came out. And I can't tell y'all because the publisher get mad when I put their business in the street, but they didn't pay me any money to write that book because <laughs> I didn't have any platform. And it's a book on African-American hermeneutics. I don't know if you know this. Hermeneutics is not a money-making category, right? I'm pretty sure I, that's the, if you own it, it's the only hermeneutic book you own unless you're in seminary, right? No one says, you know what? I want to make a lot of money. I'm going to write a book on method. <laughs> but it came out in 2020 when apparently the world needed to hear it. And people started asking me, what does it mean to be a public theologian and a writer? So I had to reflect on what I had been doing. And what seemed to be haphazard, my wife here, a professor making a phone call there, the decision to want to help my family, um, a fear about the irrelevance of my work, was actually God leading me to a certain place. And I promise you, if you feel like you're in a fog, I'm not promising you that God is leading you to some blessing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the shape of your narrative becomes clear over time when you do the next good thing in front of you. So if you ask me how to do this, I cannot tell you, but I can encourage you to be faithful. But looking back, I can say this, that I became a writer that was somewhat decent when I started writing from a place, Huntsville, Alabama. That's why I say it almost every time I go somewhere. Because you know what I realized? I was not a very good British New Testament scholar. I was really bad at being into writing. My, my Scottish accent is the worst. And I'm actually not a very good white evangelical, right? I couldn't, I'm sorry. I'm black, y'all. <laughs> That's a surprise. Like, yeah, you've been black all day. Okay. One of the things that I want to articulate is that I couldn't, I still have trouble seeing and articulating a different culture. But I could see my neighborhood. Every detail. I knew the ins and the outs of the culture. I could tell you where you get the best barbecue. I can tell you the people who are going to mess up your edge if you want to get your hair cut. I can tell you all of those things, right? And people talk about finding your voice. 
I actually think it's really important to find our place. What I realized is that your place, your story, and your people, precisely because they're yours, can be universal. That a distinctively black story be a universal story. We sometimes think that the only stories in universal are, and I'm sorry, I'm in the Midwest now, these Midwestern stories where there's no accents and no culture and there's no sugar in the sweet tea. Like they think that's what it is, right? Because it's, it's bland. This is what makes it universal. God bless Chicago. <laughs> Chicago suburbs. But actually, it's the particular that is special. That you don't have to be able to identify with the culture, but if it's well drawn out and defined, we can find ourselves. And because black people are human, our stories are human stories. So part of it is as a writer, as a preacher, as a leader, you can become somebody else. I remember when um, Rick Owen was popular in California, his brother's freezing in Vermont in Hawaiian T-shirts. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> the other thing that I realized as a Christian writer, I'm going to use some Bible now. I promise I got Bible. I got a whole PhD in New Testament. As a writer, one of the central things for me was the idea of the image of God. The Genesis 1, 26 to 28 teaches us that we're all made in God's image. And alongside of that is the mandate to reproduce and to multiply, which raises the question, what are you going to do with all these people who multiply? <laughs> right? That's the creation of society and culture. In other words, part of what it means to be made in the image of God is what is called the cultural mandate, the idea that it is our job as Christians to create and make culture. I'm going to read a passage. I know this is some of y'all's life verse. It's from Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 and 22. Don't get mad at me, because I know you don't like it, because it's boring, but it's important. Okay? This passage. Listen to what happens here. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and named it Enoch after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad was the father of Mahujael. Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael the father of Lamech, the first jerk in the Bible. That's why that's my part. <laughs> Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Adah bore Jabal. He was the ancestor of those who lived in tents and have livestock. His brother was named Jubal. Listen to this part. He was the ancestor of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Music. Zillah bore Tubal Cain who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. The sister of Tubal Cain was Neymar. Society then involves culture creation. We grow, we multiply, we build cities, we build culture, and we make food. That means every single culture that exists in the world, black, brown, Asian, Latino, whatever it is, every single culture bears within it, all of them, the image of God. But every single culture also bears the marks of the fall. There are no inherently holier cultures than others, unless you want to give it to the Jewish people because they get there straight from the Bible. But you know what I mean, right? All the rest of us, we just doing stuff, right? And so, and so as a writer, when I write something, I'm entering into the God-given work of culture creation. One of the things that I always struggle with is how do I be a Christian if my work doesn't have the name of Jesus on it on every page? And a lot of us feel like if we're not doing missionary work or pastoral work, we feel like we're not doing something Christian. We just put a Bible verse on the building that we built and it becomes Christian, right? Put Bible verses on your house. But you don't have to justify your work by Bible verses, if you are involved in the God-given work of culture creation, you're doing God's labor. We're called to create beauty. Now, when I first, and it took me a while to figure this out, when I first um, started writing publicly, I had this idea that, you know, if I don't get a gospel presentation somehow into this piece about whatever I'm writing about, I've lost my moment. But then I realized, I had this, God kept saying, I'm going to be careful, I had this sense over and over again, this calling, this word, beauty, beauty, beauty. That God was, was, was pulling me towards, just write something beautiful. 
and I'll be glorified in it. Part of what we're doing as Christians is to simply participate in a culture that has so much ugly about it that creates beauty. I remember we, when we, um, I was doing ministry in Norfolk, Virginia, and there was this impoverished community. And one of the things that the pastor had us do was to go do neighborhood cleanups. Because there was something about adding dignity to that community and adding beauty to it that lifted the spirits of the people that made them more receptive to the gospel. That part of what actually the ugliness of culture and the destruction of communities brings down the souls of people, right? There's something about creating beauty that lifts the human spirit. So if you're someone who creates beauty, you can be doing part of God's work. But I recognize that as a writer, and what I'm saying to you is part of your job as a Christian, add the beauty in the world. And in the world in which people are trying to take from people, your gift of beauty is a part of the articulation of the gospel. But I couldn't just simply create beautiful things as cool as that was. I had to build the, the brokenness of culture. I'm going to quote from Andrew O'Connor, if that's okay. She's one of my favorite Christian novelists. And she describes what it means to be a writer. And she says the following. She says, the novelist of Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him. And his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience that used to seeing them as natural. In other words, the culture is broken, but they can't see it. And he may be forced to use ever more violent means to get his vision across to a hostile audience. When you can assume your audience holds the same beliefs as you do, you can relax a little. Use normal ways of communicating. When you have to assume that it is not, make the vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing you shout, or for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. You see this in the prophets. They, they use these dramatic ways of articulating to the culture its brokenness. One of the things that is hard to do is when we have people who live in ways that are damaging. If you're a Christian with any sense of compassion and you see people who are living hard lives, you don't just sit back smugly and judge them. You feel a real sense of empathy. And part of the question that you have to ask as a writer or a communicator is how do I articulate the brokenness of the culture in a way that actually allows the culture to see its brokenness, not that it doesn't allow me to feel good at having passed judgment. Now, to be honest, for me, because of the work that I do, that does not often involve me just using Bible verses. I can't just say in a public column in the, in the Atlantic, Genesis 14, 22 says this, therefore y'all should change America, right? I have to think about ways to communicate to the culture in a way the culture will hear. I'm not saying, we're going to get to the Bible in a minute, trust me. What I'm saying is, as writers and thinkers, there's an idea called common grace where Christianity is true. Some of the core wisdom that we offer to the world is compelling in its own right. And part of what it means to be a Christian in the public square or a Christian who has to preach to a, a secular audience is articulating the truths of Christianity so that people can see its interior logic. I think about um, my public writing is something like I do with my friends. A lot of times I have non-believing friends and every time they have a problem, I don't go, well, if you just accepted Jesus. <laughs> no, like most of the time we have normal conversations and I give them the wisdom that, that comes from God, hopefully, but it isn't just peppered with Bible verses. But sometimes you gotta, you gotta give them what you gotta give them. Right? I remember, um, when George Floyd happened, I was, um, writing for the New York Times. And they had asked me to write a column. And you can go back and read. It's called What the Bible Has to Say About Black Anger. And I wrote the first two paragraphs. And I remember how I felt when I wrote it. It says there's a picture of black bodies that were lynched in the 1920s. And people were posed beside them. And you take pieces of the black bodies home. There's pictures of kind of 
the, the beatings of slaves, you can see it. There's a video of George. And so I, I went through the long documented history of the visible evidence of the mangling of black bodies in America. And that par- those two paragraphs were some of the most depressing stuff that I'd ever written. And normally when I write something like that, I try to think of some kind of redemptive turn that everybody going to agree with. But on that particular day, I said, you know what, y- y'all, br- okay. y'all need Jesus. I-, I remember thinking that in my head. And I said, I cannot think out a way out of the problem that I could say publicly that doesn't involve the cross. And so I took a risk. And I put it in there. The cross breaks the wheel. Sometimes, as a Christian, you're engaging in culture creation, the addition of beauty. Sometimes you are articulating um, the brokenness of the world using the evidence that we all can accept. And sometimes, as a writer, as a preacher, or as a friend, you have to get to the point where the Jesus bit comes out. Because you can be as friendly a church as you want to be, and you can invite people to all of the activities and all of the giveaways. You can do all of that stuff, which you should do. Fine. But at a certain point, you got to do some business with the Lord. There's a passage in Exodus 36, verse 1. I know, you said this is just like, this is even better than my, my Genesis 4 passage. <laughs> the obscure, right? And it says the following. I want you to listen to what it says. Remember, um, the brothers Jubal had made the cities. Remember this? Listen to these guys. Basilel and Aholiab and every skillful one to whom the Lord has given skill and understanding to know how to do the work and the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Interestingly enough, there's two people who have skills. One just builds cities. That's his skill. This other person is also skilled in the use of, of, of building things. But his building is distinctively for the house of the Lord. And what I want to say to you is there's both of those people are doing God's work, but sometimes that work of God that you're gifted, your gifts have to be deployed specifically for God's work when the spirit moves you to do so. In other words, sometimes you got to speak plainly. So as a writer, I'm involved in culture creation. And I think that the church can add to the beauty in the world. A lot of Christians who write fiction, music, all of this stuff, just add beauty to the world. Sometimes, and this isn't all that we do, we also offer cultural critique. That through the lens of the gospel, we see the places where the culture, and this, I want to, I want to say this as clearly as I possibly can. It is not merely that we see something as sinful and we condemn it. It's that we see the things that are in the way of human flourishing. And that our goal isn't just to condemn the sin, but to set the person free to live the life that God had called them to do. And so the sin is the thing in the way of their flourishing. The condemnation isn't the point. The freedom is the point. So we do. We are engaged in critique for the sake of freedom. And sometimes that critique is implicitly Christian, Sometimes it's explicit. A few more things, then I'll sit down. Culture creation, critique, beauty. One of the other things that I've learned is courage. And I'll say this. I learned this from black pastors. Because if you ever go to a black church and you hang out in one for a long time, they will say something that just melts your face. Like, did they really say that? You kind of look at your neighbor like, do you say that? And I, it, it, it's called like audacity. Now, I did some research on this. It's true, I did. It goes all the way back to the beginning. If you read Frederick Douglass now, he couldn't get tenure in many Christian schools in America. Because <laughs> he would tell you about yourself. You know why? 
Because when you are broke and you are oppressed and you don't have any money, all you got is the truth. So you got nothing to lose. She might as well tell it. Tell When you get ready to quit the job, isn't that when you tell the truth? I'm leaving here today. <laughs> I'm going to get all that is in me out of me. Right? And so you have to be courageous enough to actually tell the truth. And what I recognize is a lot of people, sometimes we as Christians, can be afraid to articulate the truths that we know. And we can downplay the problem so we give God less work to do. In other words, we say, you know, if racism isn't that bad. This is not as divided as we all seem. Then let's just all hug each other, right? We don't really need the Holy Spirit to show up because we're not that divided. But no, no, no. What if we're precisely that divided? And the reason that people don't listen to our solutions is because we don't articulate the problem. In other words, when we start talking about the problems that exist in the world, if someone doesn't hear you articulating the truth, they're going to turn you off. And so when I sat down to write, I had in mind the people in my neighborhood who said Christianity was irrelevant to their needs. And unless I articulated racism in a way that they would nod their head as I articulated it, they weren't going to say yes to my solution. I knew we were going to end up at Jesus, right? You think that it's Jesus is the problem. It's not Jesus. It's that we're afraid to allow the gospel to actually do its work. We must be courageous. I remember what it was like, and I think about this all of the time, when I was in college, and I would sit in the audiences, and they invite the speaker. I remember thinking, because there wasn't a lot of black people in the room, like, I hope that speaker tells the truth. Because I don't have the standing to tell the truth, but hopefully that person articulates what's actually on my heart. And if they did, I left. I remember when I was a kid, this is actually true. This is true. You shouldn't do this, but I did it. I used to come to church every Sunday, and I used to say to myself, I got sins planned for later on this week. <laughs> Some good sins planned. But if you preach well, you get another week. I don't make long-term commitments. This is a Sunday-to-Sunday relationship, Pastor. I need some urgency from you. You need to will, like, I, oh, you didn't get me this week. I got to snuck back. Okay, well, I'm in the streets. Because I needed somebody who was going to tell me the truth every week. And I feel like sometimes our preaching and our ministry lacks boldness. And I'm not talking about cruelty. Sometimes it's courageous vulnerability. I remember when I was sitting down <laughs> to write Reading While Black. And I was thinking about how I wanted to open the book. And this is true. I was thinking to myself, I want the blackest introduction possible. <laughs> and the blackest thing I could think of in my head was Outcast of the Source Awards. That's what I was thinking about. If you don't know about it, you don't know about it. But it's like it's the East Coast, West Coast rap beat. <laughs> with the South in the middle of it, I was like, well, that's where I came from. Where is God there? Because I knew every single person from my neighborhood who opened the book and said, this brother talking about the Source Awards? Let me lean in. Courage. We must be willing to salt, to allow the gospel to solve the problems set by the culture, not the small problems we articulate in our messages. So I'm going to leave this alone. But one of my favorite shows as a kid it was like MacGyver. Y'all just watch MacGyver? Or you watch like Batman, like the old Batman with the black and white. And, he's, and you know how MacGyver and Batman, they was always doomed, right? They tied up, the, the thing is ticking down to zero. How did you get out of this? I don't how did you get out of this one, right? But they convinced me that the problem was real. And because they convinced me that even though a Batman has a five-year contract, I said, he's gonna die today. Right? So I listened. I listened. If you stand up in front of your people and you actually articulate the fears on their heart, they will listen to your solution. So I learned as a writer, I had, and, and sorry, I keep, this is, this is the hardest part for me to get. When I write the problem, I don't always know the solution. That's where God has to show up. When I wrote 
the chapter on what the Bible has to say about black anger or when I wrote the chapter on slavery in reading my black, I did not have the conclusion written when I started. I just jumped on the train and said, God, you better get us through it or we're going to be lost. We have to preach as if like we are actually depending on the power of God. Okay. One more, maybe two. Range. Range. When I looked at the phenomenon of what I saw in the Bible, I saw the full range of emotions in the Psalter. In other words, the people of God weren't always chipper. Because I'm not a chipper dude. I'm sorry. You know how people can only write sad love songs? That's like their whole, that's their whole jam. Every album is sad. She did me wrong. Like, I'm not, I'm not a happy writer. It's like, I, I have to work my way towards having range. And what I want to say is, when I looked at the Bible, it showed me the full range of emotions. Which meant that I could be a Christian when I was feeling different things. In other words, I had to give people permission to be human. Also, I saw in the Bible wisdom literature that sometimes what the Bible did was not give us complete rules, but advice on how to live. I saw music. I saw narrative. I saw law. If you think about the range of ways that God shapes the people, that ought to form your emotional, theological, and intellectual toolkit. Are you feeding your people a balanced diet? Or do they just get one emotion, joy? Or do they get only melancholy? Or do they only get law and very little gospel? This is the last one. And maybe I've said it already, but I'll say it again. I found out that I really loved what I did. I love a good sentence. That may seem arrogant. But I love a good sentence. I'm, sometimes I write a sentence. I, I got them now. I knew when people read that sentence, I was like, man, I know they're going to love it. And at first I said, Esau, you're getting arrogant. He said, maybe so. But then the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but it was this. This is actually true. This is actually true. I think this is actually important. It was not joy at my own ability. It was actually joy at the anticipated joy of others. I said... I can't wait until this ministers to someone. That the joy that we have in the Lord, in the work that we do, is our reflective delight in what God might do us to help other people. And so it's okay. I know that people talk about doing ministry is all suffering and, you know, they don't pay you right and they, they lie on you and they kick you out of church. That's, that's partially true. <laughs> that may happen. But before they kick you out... <laughs> You can enjoy yourself. Some of us have gotten to the place where ministry is work and not joy. And if you have to get yourself away from ministry for a little bit of time until you find a reflective delight in the work that God has given you to do, because that joy is infectious. People know when their pastors ain't happy, you look sad. <laughs> I see some of y'all like, y'all need a break. It's like... <laughs> I don't know what y'all do in Portland. Go climb a mountain or something. I don't know. It's, there's no mountains in the Midwest. We just got to walk straight. <laughs> All the way to Iowa, we just walk around in circles. Isn't it? But whatever it is, whatever it is that you do, find a way to rediscover your joy. And the deepest joy, I think, is when you can anticipate the joy that you might give to other people. So what does it mean then to be a Christian writer? And I think it's connected to Christian vocation in general. I think that it means over time making sense of what God is up to in your narrative and finding the place that where God was leading you even when you couldn't see it. And then it's acknowledging it is you and no other person is called to do the work as God has given you to do. I'm the only person from Northwest Huntsville who wants to tell this particular story in this particular way. God gave me that work. God didn't give you all that work. Find the work that God has given you to do from your place. Second, 
emotion and reason are part of what it means to be a Christian communicator and leader. You must help people feel the gospel, but you can't rely upon emotions. Emotions won't disciple you throughout the entirety of your life. There has to be a theological substructure that makes Christianity plausible when things are hard. You're engaged in the work of culture making. What you do as a Christian is probably what it means to be a human. You are creating and adding beauty to the world. But part of culture making as a Christian involves a bit of uncreation, tearing down the things that the culture have created that gets in the way of human flourishing. Sometimes that work can be done implicitly with the tools that everybody will recognize. But other times it involves showing exactly how the gospel meets the suffering needs of the people. And that's where wisdom comes in. You have to become the master architect to say, is this a gospel moment? Is this a wisdom moment? Is this a creation moment? It's an uncreation moment. Great teaching and ministry is courageous. We must learn to trust God enough to solve the actual problems that exist in the world. I mean, we must articulate them truly so we can give God the space to answer the question. And to answer those questions, we have to use all the tools God has given us in its very forms. And lastly, in the midst of all of these things that can feel like a list of stuff to do, remember that a teacher is entering into the joy of his master, who is most thrilled when the joy and the thing that he has created finds its home in the hearts and imaginations of others. Thank you. Thanks again for listening today. If you enjoyed this content, I'd encourage you to go back into our earlier episodes. This was the first time Dr. McCulley was here in person, but not the first talk he's ever done to Portland pastors. We actually had him and N.T. Wright together during COVID for a virtual gospel gathering. That recording is available earlier on the podcast, so go check that out now. Also, just a reminder, we do these gatherings live in the Portland metro area about once a quarter. So check out togetherpdx.org slash events to see who's coming next. Thanks for listening.